Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm very happy to welcome Dr. David Perlmutter, a board-certified neurologist and six-time New York Times bestselling author of books about the connection between nutrition and major diseases, brain health, and stress, among many other health and lifestyle concerns. You may be most familiar with his book, Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar. His latest book, Drop Acid, focuses on the pivotal role of uric acid in metabolic diseases. He is recognized internationally as a leader in the field of nutritional influences in neurological disorders and as a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. He's also a guest lecturer at top universities and serves as an associate professor at one of our partner institutions, the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. So Dr. Perlmutter, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Shiv, I'm delighted to spend time with you today. Thank you for having me. And as you know, our audience is primarily current and future healthcare professionals. And at one point you were a future healthcare professional, a medical student. Could you tell our audience what first got you interested in medicine and particularly neurology? I began my interaction with the world of medicine at a very early age. My father was a neurosurgeon, actually University of Miami. He was their first chief of neurosurgery back in the day. And, you know, he was a very busy individual. And I learned early on that if I was going to spend any time with my dad, it was going to be really on his time. So I convinced him first to take me on rounds on Saturday morning when he would see patients. And then ultimately, when I turned around 13 or 14, he invited me to spend time in the uh, operating room with him. In those days, I guess uh, there wasn't as much uh, concern about that. And I would hold retractors while he would take out brain tumors and work on somebody's back taken out a disc. And so I had a very early exposure to medicine in general and specifically the neurosciences. In college, I spent a summer working in a lab doing research in Gainesville, Florida, at the University of Florida, looking, writing a paper about the anatomy of the brain as revealed by the operating microscope. And we ultimately published an atlas to allow brain surgeons to go through the brain and understand it through a microscope as opposed to just looking at it without any magnification. Thereafter, I went to medical school and did a neurology residency, then went into practice of neurology. And then over the years, I became less and less enthusiastic about my job. And I realized that as a neurologist, we were treating symptoms, but we weren't treating underlying problems. We were helping people manage their headache pain or the tremor of Parkinson's or giving them seizure medication to reduce their seizure frequencies. But, you know, as it relates to the big things that we as neurologists dealt with and deal with, Alzheimer's, for example, we weren't really looking at why people have this problem. To this day, we do not have any meaningful pharmaceutical treatment for that disease affecting 6 million of us Americans. And so I set about to try to determine what are the inroads to that situation, Alzheimer's per se, and even way back then, I learned that already people were writing papers, doing research, indicating that our lifestyle choices play a very significant role in determining the brain's destiny as it relates to functionality and as it relates to disease risk. So I began becoming very interested in these factors, many of which, as you mentioned in the setup, are nutritional. And again, scoured the literature and found out that a lot of people around the world were doing some really innovative work and actually interventional trials and demonstrating that changes in the diet 
could have a direct bearing on charting the brain's destiny. After incorporating these kinds of ideas, as well as other lifestyle ideas like the importance of physical exercise, getting enough restorative sleep, etc., into my practice and seeing not only feeling good about preventing disease, who would know if you actually did, but actually seeing that these interventions seem to be helpful in terms of treating the very illnesses that we're trying to prevent, I decided to write a book about it, and that was published in 2013, that was Grain Brain, making the simple claim that higher levels of sugar and refined carbohydrates were bad for the brain in terms of its destiny. And that book hit a note, you know, ended up being published in 34 languages around the world, and a lot of people took notice. A lot of the mainstream tended to castigate it at first, but ultimately I think the literature provided verification of our contention, and that book seems to have stood the test of time. I then really began to dig much deeper into the inroads to metabolic dysfunction. What causes elevation of blood sugar? What causes hypertension? What causes obesity and at least overweight and elevated BMI? Why? Because they affect the brain. And realizing it's not just the brain, it's the heart, it's the immune system, it's risk for diabetes, it's risk for even certain forms of cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, and pancreatic cancer. And so my journey took me deeper and deeper into what is influencing these fundamental mechanisms like inflammation, which is quite amplified when people are metabolically distressed. And that led me to consider that perhaps the gut bacteria might be playing a role. You know, at that point, we were beginning to see literature that talked about dysbiosis or changes in the gut bacteria being related to our pervasive chronic degenerative conditions like diabetes and heart disease, but more importantly, being related to the mechanisms like inflammation and oxidative stress that are known to underlie these diseases. And I began exploring that quite aggressively and wrote a book called Brain Maker that looked at the relationship between things going on in the gut and a very distant, seemingly disparate organ, the brain, that somehow there was a relationship between the gut and the brain. Who knew? I mean, in our education, the gut and brain were as far apart as Miami and Chicago. But, you know, there was never a discussion of any relationship of seemingly disparate body systems in those days. And, you know, that was kind of early on in the microbiome exploration that, as you well know, followed thereafter. I then began to understand, along with another a medical doctor, Austin Perlmutter, our son, that it was important to give people update information, updated, great, meaningful, scientifically validated, clinically validated information about what they could do to improve their health. But it began to be puzzling to both of us that the biggest breakdown of the system of doctors learning information and purveying that information to their patients was the missing step three, the action on the part of the patient to carry out the information that they were provided. We realized that there's a lot that affects an individual's decision-making. Whereas we know what the best decision is, we can't bring ourselves to exercise each day, to cut back on the fructose consumption, to cut back on alcohol consumption, to make sure we go to bed at 9 or 
and that we don't eat too late, all the things that we talk about that are important. While it's great to make the recommendations, that important part three, making the decision and carrying it out, was the breakdown. We realized that about 75% of the information that patients are given from their doctors is not acted upon. So we began a deep exploration as to what's involved in making decisions. And we distilled that question down to uh, reveal two important areas of the brain that are involved in how we choose to do what the doctor tells us to do or not, but really how we make any decision. And to simplify, there is an impulsive, non-forward thinking, non-empathetic thinking, narcissistic part of the brain called the amygdala. It does what I want to do right now, and I'm going to do it, and I don't care how it affects me or how it affects my future, or importantly these days, how it affects other people. And in addition, there's another part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex that lives behind the forehead. And that part of the brain may be called perhaps the adult in the room. That's a part of the brain that leverages data, that leverages past experience, that considers multiple possible outcomes, that considers how my decision might affect me, of course, but my future me as well, and might even affect other people and even affect the planet. Again, the adult in the room. And importantly, we learned that this prefrontal cortex exercises top-down control over the more impulsive, immature amygdala running the show. We call this top-down control. There's a connection between the two called the anterior cingulate. So we really rely on having the adult in the room if we're going to make better decisions, if we're going to even do the things or some of the things that our doctors tell us to do. That's important for us to understand as healthcare providers because, you know, you give people the very best information, you give them the printout, you call them the next day. But again, 75% of the information is not going to be acted on. So we distilled down this paradigm as it relates to decision-making and recognized that the connection that is so important to allow the adult to stay in the room is highly influenced and degraded by the mechanism of inflammation. That when we augment inflammation in our bodies, we take the adult out of the room and make poor decisions. And why that really matters is because those poor decisions then enhance inflammation and as such bode poorly for future decision-making. We coined a term a disconnection syndrome as to these individuals who are through no fault of their own cannot carry out the recommendations. And that's really very, very important because, you know, we write these books, we do the lectures, we interface with the public at so many levels. And we've got to recognize that as we move forward in time, and as more and more people adopt a Western slash pro-inflammatory diet globally, that their decision-making is affected. And even the way they see the world around them is clearly nuanced by the changes in the setup and the functionality of their brains by virtue of this inflammation brought upon them by the very lifestyle choices that we're doing our very best to avoid or allow people to avoid. So that took us through Brainwash. With the new book, Drop Acid, again, everything for me is about metabolism. 
and the downstream negative consequences of poor metabolism, which are increased oxidative stress, increased inflammation, elevation of blood sugar, elevation of insulin resistance, blood pressure, and body mass index, all the things that contribute to the global pandemic that we are now experiencing, the number one cause of death on our planet, the chronic degenerative conditions, according to the World Health Organization. These are, at their core, the manifestation of disrupted metabolism. So for me as a physician, and certainly for me as a neurologist, knowing that there are new inputs that can be leveraged to bring about better metabolic health are always going to be important. And that was the state of mind I was in when one day I was going for a run and listened to a podcast where the interview was with a physician, Dr. Richard Johnson, one of the world's top researchers in terms of the role of uric acid elevation in creating metabolic mayhem. I was captivated by his interview such that I doubled my run that day so I could hear it twice. I should tell you how long I run. And did what I guess any of us would do when I finally got home and grabbed a shower, picked up the phone and called him and said, hey, just heard this podcast, unbelievable. And I, I need to learn as much as I can about uric acid. We spent a lot of time on the phone. We talked about guitars that we played. We talked about metabolism, renal disease, uric acid, diabetes, hypertension. And at that point, I realized I needed to know everything I could about uric acid, ended up pulling about 500 peer-reviewed references and learned an awful lot about uric acid well beyond what I had been schooled in, which was simply gout and kidney stones, that uric acid turns out to be a central player in metabolic syndrome. Matter of fact, that's the title of a paper that was written in 2016, a collaborative paper, Turkish and Japanese researcher, uric acid in metabolic syndrome from innocent bystander to a central player, really focusing our attention on this uric acid as being really not just happens to be elevated in diabetes and hypertension and obesity, but it's playing a mechanistic, a causal role. And that's empowering as can be. Because if we know that and we embrace that and we understand that, then we now have an incredibly powerful new tool in our toolbox to rein in this metabolic mayhem that is globally pervasive. This is fascinating. I mean, you preempted a lot of the questions I had about how you went from neurology to then nutrition and then the books. But, you know, two things that immediately stand out I'd like to double click on. One is this concept of lifelong learning. Remind me, when did you graduate medical school? 1981. And so, you know, 40 years later, you're still reading hundreds of peer-reviewed papers as you work to create new books and educate yourself first for your patient care, but then educate, you know, the world about these issues. So the role of lifelong learning, and I'm curious, you know, advice that you have for our audience about, is it just curiosity about how do you maintain that attitude of lifelong learning? Because what our people who taught me learn in med school was smoking is good for asthma, right? Like there's a lot of things that constantly are being revised and it's hard, especially with COVID now to know what's true. Does, you know, hydroxychloroquine work or not? And there's all these competing papers that come out. This is the process of medicine. It's an art, sometimes not a science. Any advice on lifelong learning? And then I'll, I'll ask the second question after that. Yeah. So I think lifelong learning is good for you. It's good for your brain. And 
I don't do it because of that. I'm happy that I do it because I know it's therapeutic for me. I do it out of curiosity. And there are still a lot of unanswered questions and more and more every day, which is a good thing. We don't know it all. I mean, when I was in medical school, the notion that our brains could repopulate with new neurons was absolutely blasphemous. If we would have mentioned that, they would have thrown us out. It was the notion that that our lifestyle choices affect the expression of our DNA epigenetically, absolutely ridiculous. They would never have considered that. So my point is that it's really, I think, important. I'm not saying to be iconoclastic day in and day out, but to look at long-held tenets and recognize that nothing is sacrosanct. There's nothing there that can't be overturned. I mean, 30 years ago, we were all saying, you know, everybody's got to be on a low-fat diet, that if you eat you know, any kind of fat, even olive oil, that's a terrible thing. You're going to have a bad health outcome. How far we have come, we've turned that one 180 degrees, that's for sure. But it's the discoveries that I am loving. I mean, and it's the ability to change your messaging that I'm very comfortable with, but I think audiences need to be comfortable with as well, recognizing that, you know, what you and I are talking about right now, we may get together in another couple of years on a podcast. There may be a different set of dogma at that point that we have to accept. So it's the appreciation that science is dynamic And that's what you want. My gosh, if we accept the status quo, we won't have any progress. Ronald Reagan famously said that status quo is a Latin term that means the mess we're in. And truly, we're not going to move the ball down the field if we don't challenge our long-held beliefs and do our due diligence, look at the science, make sure it's good science, and then move forward with what we recommend to people, what our messaging is about. But for me, it's mostly about the curiosity. You know, what can I say? Last night before I went to bed on a podcast, somebody asked a question. They said they get pain in their feet when they eat tomatoes. You know, you're a neurologist, Dr. Perlmutter, what's the answer? And, you know, that's a tough one. And I said, well, you know, maybe there's a nightshade sensitivity and, you know, tomatoes, right? Tomatoes, potatoes, eggplant, green peppers, And then I realized I don't know that much about solanacea, that group of vegetables. And I really needed to learn more about the specifics of the chemicals in that, in solanacea, in that that family of, of vegetables that are there to protect themselves against being eaten by insects. And what I learned was really quite interesting that there are genetic polymorphisms that people have that predispose them to having bad reactions when they eat, I hate to say the deadly nightshades, but the nightshade vegetables. And It's just so exciting to think about, well, that's one that's checked off now. We understand that a little bit more. So I think it's mostly the curiosity to answer your question. I love that. And it's really important, again, because if we're to provide the best care for our patients, we we can't be operating with information that's 20, 30, 40 years old and not be open to what they're telling us. Many times they have their own personal knowledge about their own conditions and what works or what doesn't. No doubt about it. I learn more from patients than they learn from me. People bring you articles, you know, something they found even on the internet. And you know what? You might not read it right then, but you, you know, you take it home and maybe just before you go to sleep, you glance at a paper or something that somebody gave you. Maybe you think it's hogwash, but it might just be the initial ping when, you know, a week later you get another one that sort of ties in and then you, you go through the garbage where you threw the first one out and you say, you know, maybe there's something here. Maybe there isn't. But Louis Pasteur famously said that chance favors the prepared mind. And so you've got to keep doing your work. And then when you're going to have 
you know, something serendipitous happen, in, in this case, perhaps in your treatment of a patient, it's because you're prepared for it. You've done the, the groundwork. Yeah, totally. hundred percent. I love that quote too. And there's a great book by an author and a professor named William Irvine, who's famous for stoicism. He wrote this book called Aha, about moments of insight that have shaped our world, ranging from moral and religious to scientific. And there are a lot of examples of medical insights and people who were famously rebuffed for insights that it had. One example of which are the physicians, the pathologists who I think were in Australia who discovered H. pylori contributes to stomach ulcers and the gastroenterologist. Barry Marshall. Marshall, yep, and the famous empirical experiment he did on himself. Right. He chugged some H. pylori. I mean, that's pretty well dedicated to uh, following your beliefs, isn't it? And he, and he wound up getting a Nobel Prize for this discovery, whereas there are other people who, like Semmelweis, who were, you know, went down as quacks for insights that they had had that just were not, the science didn't catch up to their insights. You know, how do you view this? Because, I mean, you've put your name out there. You've done a lot of really interesting talks and studies and books. And you know, some of the things are controversial. And in this day and age with the infodemic, how do you straddle both what your patients are telling you, what you're learning with kind of the dogma of the existing medical community that some of which are, are not very kind as, as far as how they view these beliefs? Like Alzheimer's is basically type three diabetes in terms of how the etiology, obviously that's very reductionist, but how do you balance that? And where do you draw your strength in terms of being able to put those views out it, there? It's tough. As any human would do, I look at the source and what else that source has provided. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's the quality of the science. You know, an opinion paper is one thing, maybe, you know, have a lot of great information, but I want to see a study. I want to see a large study that's well controlled, that demonstrates significant meaning, significant outcome, for example, from an intervention. You know, I'd like to see not hubris as much as people accepting that their study is less than perfect. You know, the idea that you know, more work needs to be doing. So it's a little bit of humility as opposed to hubris. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then the other thing you mentioned as you were going through this was that we have this information, right? That a lot of information is ex exists and we're solid on the actual information. There's been large enough effect size for nutrition or exercise. Hippocrates even said famously, let thy food be thy medicine, let thy medicine be thy food. You know, the role of lifestyle change in all these conditions. You know, behavior change is an issue. We've had several people on the podcast who've talked about this, including BJ Fogg, who's the Stanford behavioral scientist, wrote the book, Tiny Habits, How Do You Change Behavior? What are some of the behaviors you've most effectively changed in yourself or your patients? And like, what advice would you give to our audience about taking that next step from just having education and recommendations into actually helping their patients change their behavior? Shiv, it gets back to, you know, behavior are the decisions that we make in any particular circumstance that ultimately becomes our behavior. What do you do each day? What is your behavior like? It's based upon decision-making. And what I'd like to do is recognize that bad decisions beget bad decisions because you're compromising the decision-making apparatus because making bad decisions increases inflammation. And as I talked about earlier, it takes the adult out of the room and you're locked in to a very primitive, self-serving, impulsive decision-maker called the amygdala, basically the five-year-old in the room. And you can't get out of your own way. So what we like to offer are on-ramps to better decision-making. In other words, whether it is with that individual getting him or her to start a little bit of exercise, or maybe it's going to bed on time, or maybe it's a little bit of nature exposure, or maybe it's meditation, 
or a little bit of a dietary change, whatever we can do just to start to tip the scales of decision-making in a more positive way, it works and it allows people to regain control. There are many influences in our modern world that are keeping people away physiologically from their prefrontal cortex, but keeping people away from the better decision maker in their own brains. The media does it, the time spent uh, in front of a screen each day when other things could be happening in your life is locking people into impulsivity, especially things like pop-up ads and things that increase stress because you don't measure up for one reason or another, amplifying cortisol, amplifying gut permeability, and as such, turning on inflammation, which keeps you from accessing your prefrontal cortex, the lack of physical activity, the lack of engagement with other people, all of these things tend to fan the flames quite figuratively and literally of inflammation. Inflammation, I say fan the flames, it comes from the word inflammare, Latin for fire. So it, inflammation means quite literally that you know, you're turning on the fire in your brain and burning up that pathway to better ability to make good decisions. So it's the small steps and they are unique to that individual patient. What does he or she need? You're not gonna tell every patient, all right, do me one favor tomorrow, I want you to go out and run five miles. You know, it might be, I want you to walk to the mailbox at the end of the street and come back, or it might be, I want you to buy a potted plant and put it in your living room. So it's really, that's art of medicine to kind of feel out what might work best and be easiest and create something the patient can do not focus on what they can't do. Once you get somebody to do something that they can do, even as, as simple as putting a plant in their living room, they've done something. They finally have gained a degree of agency and that is hugely empowering because then they realize that they, to some degree, are running the show. And that, as I mentioned, is hugely empowering. I love that. And this is one reason I'm a big supporter again of not just tiny habits and giving them some agency, but the fact that they believe in something and an average patient may not be able to read a PubMed paper and get to the root, etiological root of how something works. But if they believe in some sort of advice and it gets them on an on-ramp to this stacked habit formation, because you know if they're sleeping better, they're having more energy to exercise, which then gives them endorphin spikes throughout the day. It's all kind of, as you said, a positive feedback loop. So Going from the macro, which is the stuff you've written about and published about in these journal articles, to the individual, I'm curious, like, what are some of the lifestyle changes slash your habits that you found to be most useful, even down to the macro level? I'm curious. I'm personally <laughs> interested in how many macros of carbs you eat as an Oh, example. okay. That, that's what I mean by macro. It's hard to say. I mean, you know, my lifestyle choices do, like everyone else's, continue to change with, you know, as we learn more and more about whatever it may be, you know, time-restricted eating is kind of a new idea. You know, things kind of come and go and people have challenged that at least in terms of weight loss. But I think because I'm not uh, so young anymore, I'm 67, that it's really important for me not to diverge from the choices that I think are important. Making sure for me that I get enough sleep. I could stay up pretty late reading if I didn't make myself turn the light off and go to sleep. So that's really very important. Diet-wise, I generally don't eat until 12 or 1 because I just don't. I mean, I, I'm quite aware of an eating window and why that's valuable, the work of Dr. Sachin Panda, of course. But I'm exercising in the morning and, and doing other things. So I exercise every single morning. I have to keep my body in shape because I 
really depend on it. Who doesn't, right? And that consists of a good 45 minutes of stretching of yoga, about 150 crunches, 50 push-ups, curls with a tension band, and then at least 30 minutes on the elliptical machine or 45 minutes to an hour of running. That's every day. And you know, of course, if you travel, that might not happen, but every day that I possibly can, I do that. Then my afternoons are doing things that are involved with the work that I do, as well as interviews that I do, probably three a day at least. And then I'm always writing, I'm writing articles. And right now I'm between books, but I know what my next book will be. I generally have a book on the burner somewhere that I'm working on, at least mentally, but there's always a book in the future. So, hey, can you preview? Uh, I don't know if you can preview. What yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking of writing a book called Mismatch that focuses on the mismatch that we are experiencing between evolution and environment. That at the core of our panorama of illnesses today is that we are living a discordant life. We're living a life. We're influencing our bodies in such a way that it doesn't line up with our physiology that is dictated by our long evolved genome. And that's really the underpinning of drop acid. I mean, we as humans have evolved to have a very high uric acid level as a survival mechanism, having the high uric acid because we lost the genes that would have coded for uricase, an enzyme that breaks down uric acid. Because we lost those genes, we have a higher uric acid level and therefore we survive when there's no food for long periods of time because we make a little bit more fat because we have a higher uric acid level than other mammals. So now, of course, we're seeing the consequences of having the high uric acid level. That's the mismatch. Our physiology gives us this beautiful gift, and yet we send the signals to our physiology that winter's coming, we need to make and store fat by eating a lot of fructose, as an example. That's the mismatch I'm talking about. The mismatch has to do with our lack of physical activity, our lack of exposure to sunlight, broad spectrum light, the amount of stress in our lives, et cetera. There's so many things about our modern world. It's sort of the underpinning of the paleo mentality that you know, if we can emulate the uh, experiences, the environment of our paleolithic ancestors, we'd be more in line with our genome. And interestingly, for me, this is going to be full circle because my first paper on this topic was published half a century ago, in 1971, probably before you were born, in the Miami Herald. And I concluded that missive by asking the question, what about us who are living today with this outdated machinery? Meaning that our bodies, our physiology, as dictated by our genome, is really more appropriate for another time, a time when we were stressed by food scarcity and other types of stress, we were less comfortable. And it's this mismatch that uh, really, as I mentioned, is really at the cornerstone of our extensive list of chronic maladies that we're suffering from. That's fascinating. I, I can't wait yeah. to read that because yeah, there's so many good examples of that. And science has done a tremendous job of helping us overcome natural selection. But as we've been living longer and we have the silver tsunami coming, it's going to show up. It is showing up with, I mean, Alzheimer's being and dementia being the perfect example. So my last question for you is, you know, go back to 1968 when you were starting medical school around that era. 
you know, what advice would you give to a young Dr. Perlmutter about approaching his career in healthcare? And, and you know, maybe the, if that's the same advice you'd give a current student, I'd be interested or if it's diverged as well. Your son apparently went to medical school too. So any advice you could give our audience would be great. Yes, I would say be more open-minded. Understand that medical schools are very curriculum driven and that there is significant industry influence on that curriculum. And it's unfortunate, but it's reality. I'd say be much more open-minded, question everything you're, you're being told. And beyond that, really do your best to be as open-minded as you can about the incredible influence of lifestyle choices that people make in terms of their health. In America and in Western countries in general, we practice reactive medicine, meaning People come in with a problem that has already developed and then we do our best to help them. And I think it would be valuable to spend some time focusing on learning about proactive medicine, also known as preventive medicine, keeping people healthy in the first place, wondering, you know, how do they get to this place? And next patient that comes in, we're going to think about that and, and put that into play. You're not heroic when you're being involved in preventive medicine. You're not cathing a stenose coronary artery at three o'clock in the morning or whatever it may be and being the hero. But there's a lot to be said about talking to people about their exercise program, their diets long before that coronary artery became occluded. So I think those are the, the recommendations I'd make. Yeah. Great advice to end on being open-minded, staying curious and being a lifelong learner. And again, sharpening the ax, as we like to say. So Dr. Palmer, thanks so much for not only taking the time to be with us today, but more importantly for the work that you're doing to advocate for all these lifestyle changes, not just again, healthcare professionals, but with the general public. Shiv, I, I wanna thank you for having me today. Great questions. And I'm glad we got to explore these areas because I think they're really important. Thank you again. Likewise, thank you. And with that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>